Welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. And this week's question is... Are turkey basters really a thing? That it provides a way for an intimate experience of artificial insemination. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Oh, the entrepreneurial spirit of the LGBTQ community. (laughs) I love it. Hey, Ronnie. Hey, Rebecca. Welcome back to This is Probably a Really Weird Question. Thank you to all our listeners for following the show. Um, We've been getting some really nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. So please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your content. If you'd like to support our show, we are a nonprofit with fiscal sponsorship from the Foundation for Delaware County. You can even make a tax-deductible donation by clicking the Support Us button on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Yes, and another great reason to head to the website is to see our merch on Tee Public, which just gets better and better. <laughs> True. <laughs> T-shirts, mugs, stickers, tote bags, all the usual stuff, but with the most amazing designs, courtesy of the very talented Nora Carlson. If you liked our conversation about Betty Dodson, you are going to love what we have there. But Ronnie, before we dive into this week's episode, I did want to ask you, how are you doing? Since we last recorded and since our last episode came out, there have been some really terrible targeted social media attacks Mm -hmm. and misinformation campaigns against gender service providers, programs uh, for youth across the country. Yeah, you know, thanks for asking. It has been stressful and sad and um, scary and hard. Um, And, you know, today's episode isn't about caring for gender diverse youth or even about the backlash that clinicians face um, when we provide that care. But I I do want to say a couple things about this issue before we move on to, to more hilarious topics. First of all, you know, these, these attacks aren't funny and they put real people's lives and safety at risk. You know, just a single post from a large online social media account can trigger this huge onslaught of very real harassment and threats of violence and doxing. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, not every trans or non-binary person wants or needs medical care. But when that care is needed, especially when the patient is a child, it is done thoughtfully within a context of education and consent. It involves a multidisciplinary team of experts, and it is care that in some cases is life-saving. I follow the news about this stuff, and I get sort of physically furious and enraged, and I also feel helpless to help you and other people who provide this really important care and to help the kids who need it. Uh, So what can someone like me, what can our listeners do to help in this situation? 
Oh, I love that you're so action-oriented, Becky. <laughs> um, it's really kind of you to ask. I would say there are a few things that folks could consider. You know, if you live in a state that is considering or has already passed legislation that bans or criminalizes gender-affirming care, you can call your representatives and let them know that access to gender-affirming care is important to you and that you'll use your vote and your political donations to reflect that. Don't forget that our our representatives are our employees. They work for us. And so um, we should feel free to make our voices heard. If you're a clinician or a care provider, even if you're not, if you can't or you don't provide gender-affirming medical care, you can actually make your space more welcome to trans and non-binary youth and their families. And there are plenty of resources online about how to do that. And maybe we could include some in our show notes for today. And then, you know, speak up when you see misinformation about gender-affirming care being posted um, and report social media accounts that are threatening or, or spreading misinformation. All right. Thank you so much, Ronnie. And uh, I don't know how to segue back to this week's question from that. It's, that stuff's so heavy and so <laughs> It upsetting. is really heavy. I know. Um, yeah. You know, it's so heavy, similar to how I feel after I eat a Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Ronnie, now that you mention it, I had been thinking about turkey basters. Have you now? I have. Uh, have you ever had a patient or even another clinician ask you about turkey basters and fertility treatments? You know, I, I have. It's uh, it's happened maybe once, but when it happens, it's hilarious. Um, or when it did happen, it's hilarious. So, you know, in order to get pregnant, one usually needs an egg and then some sperm. And those two things need to come together. And if you are in a relationship where you don't necessarily have somebody whose body makes sperm, you have to kind of think about where to get it and how to get it into somebody's body. And so I am very fortunate to provide full spectrum family medicine in my care. So that means I do, you know, womb to tomb, sperm to worm, healthcare. Um, and that includes pregnancy care. And I also help folks with insemination sometimes. And so when an LGBTQ family is thinking about expanding their family and having a kid, sometimes they'll say, so like, how does this even work? Like, is the turkey baster a thing? And, you know, I would say the, 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 in theory, sure, the turkey baster is a thing, but in practice, we don't actually use a turkey baster for inseminations. Okay. That's good to know. That's good to know. Um, <laughs> I wondered if you could explain, because we hear all these different terms, artificial insemination, IVF. There's a lot of different ways that medical mm -hmm. technology can help people conceive and have a pregnancy. So can you just sort of give me the Cliff's Notes version of what that, what those different things are? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are just like you said, there are lots of different ways to get sperm and egg together. So I think maybe the easiest way to think about it is kind of like where that pregnancy is ultimately going to grow, right? So if somebody is trying to get pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term in their own body um, and their body makes eggs that they're trying to fertilize, 
then you need to get sperm into their body in some way, right? So that could be home insemination, which is, I think, where this turkey baster idea comes from. It's basically a conduit, right? You have to get the sperm from external <laughs> to internal. And um, usually we use like like a syringe without the needle on it because all you have to do is kind of like, like a slurp up. <laughs> it's a really horrifying sound effect, but slurp <laughs> up the, <laughs> the semen and then either get it to the right spot in the vagina or actually pass a really small, thin catheter through the cervix into the uterus, which is IUI or intrauterine insemination. I don't know that we need to get into the like nitty gritty details about what kind of sperm we can use for which insemination method, but maybe suffice it to say that you can't use the same kind of sperm for all of these insemination methods. I had no idea. It's true. Boy, once you journey into this like sperm donor insemination pathway, you will, it's a wonderland. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so the home inseminations are usually called like IVI or intravaginal insemination or ICI, which is intracervical insemination. And then IUI usually needs to be done in a clinic setting. Or, you know, I, I do know some couples who've done it at home with like a friend that's a midwife or something like that. Hmm. And then IVF is in vitro fertilization. Vitro means glass, right? So in vitro means the insemination, the fertilization happens outside of somebody's body. And then that fertilized egg, that embryo is transferred back into somebody's body in the hopes that it will implant and then grow into a pregnancy. And these are, that's where the horrible nickname test tube baby comes in, right? Yes. Yes. And then there are, you know, other options for assisted reproductive technology. One is co-IVF, which is when, let's say you have one person, we'll call that person A, and you harvest some eggs from person A, and then you use donor sperm from person B to make an embryo. And then the embryo gets transferred to person C. So you take somebody else's egg, inseminate it, and then that gets implanted into somebody else where hopefully it will, again, implant and become a pregnancy. The other option for assisted reproduction is using a gestational carrier. We used to call this surrogacy. We don't really use that term anymore. But a gestational carrier is somebody who would carry a pregnancy to term and then would not parent that baby, but the, you know, the intended parents would then adopt and raise that baby. Very cool. I've friends who've used the second to last one that you described, and it was really wonderful for them. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, our our understanding and definitions of what a family is continue to grow and blossom, which is a really beautiful thing. Fantastic. Before I move into this, I just wanted to alert our listeners that we are going to be talking about some of the complications that can result from medical trauma, sexual trauma, and racially motivated trauma. And so just please take care while listening. So I was, of course, curious to know when all of this started and Mm -hmm. how long it's been going on. And (laughs) I shouldn't be surprised by this anymore, but 
lo and behold, I found that the history of artificial insemination and these old questions goes back to the same themes that I run across just about anytime I research anything in the history of sexuality in the United States, Hmm. that it's always about race and class, right? So we see in this history that the bodies of poor people and people of color were used as test subjects for new procedures, and also that early advocates for artificial insemination worked on it because they thought it was a way to improve the race by sort of selecting the sperm of genius men, you know, and imagining that this was a way to breed, you know, a better, a fitter race. And by race, they meant white people. Boy, the United States is really good at racism. (laughs) We are just A plus United States, A plus on (laughs) historical and institutional racism. Totally. So that theme is always there. The second theme that I found, which I find everywhere, is that so often in our history, women's reproductive sexuality occurs as a conversation among men. Mm -hmm. Um, And that the last piece of it, that it has been intentional, longstanding, persistent movements among women feminists to reclaim control over their bodies— Um, including aspects of reproductive medicine, and more recently, of queer people, of people with non-traditional families, to also reclaim control over their bodies and to assert that they can form families as they choose. So this really hit me over the head when the first experiments in artificial insemination were done in the 1860s in the United States. Can you guess? Who was the supervising physician of these studies? I'm going to guess it was not Betty Dodson. It was not Betty Dodson. It was uh, J. Marion Sims. Does that uh, name ring a bell for you? It yeah. it does, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I seem to remember that Dr. Sims has a, a very ignoble history. Yes, he conducted horrific studies uh, of surgical technique on enslaved women on a plantation in the South in the 1840s and 1850s. He did not use anesthesia, even though if when he helped white women deliver babies or provide surgeries to them, he gave them ether, which was what was available at the time. And he published, he became very famous from the medical research he did. These women had no choice over whether to be subjects of his research, but there's really what some work by Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens has shown is that, in fact, some of these women became nurses. So they found this way to assert some agency so that when other enslaved women were being operated on, that in addition to Dr. Sims, there were enslaved women standing in the room, I'm sure providing comfort and trying to help alleviate pain and provide support, also acquiring medical knowledge that these women who were trapped in this situation actually became participants in it in a way that may have been a way for them to reclaim some agency over their bodies and over what they were going through. What he became famous for was fistula repair. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can say this better than I can. 
Yeah, a fistula is actually, I think about it as like a connection between two things that should not be connected. So um, like a common fistula that can happen as a result of birth trauma or racially motivated trauma as we're, as we're talking about here is, or other kinds of actual like sexual trauma can be a communication between the rectum and the back wall of the vagina, right? So you could imagine that those two parts of our body aren't usually communicating mean and by communicating, I mean, there's like a, like a tunnel that passes from one to the other, right? So there's good, healthy bacteria in the vaginal canal and there's good, healthy bacteria in the rectum, but those two parts of our bodies should not be connected by a tunnel. And so that sets people up for infection and pain and things like that. Okay. So anyway, Sims was in New York and he began actually to work with poor Irish immigrant women, work on their bodies. And he was trying unsuccessfully to do artificial inseminations. It was done successfully for the first time in 1884 in Philadelphia. And this gets us to theme number two, women's reproductive sexuality being discussed among men. And this case was so extraordinary. There was a wealthy Quaker woman. She was completely anesthetized and told that she was having a minor surgery. While she was fully anesthetized, Dr. William Pankos took sperm from probably one of his medical students and inseminated her. The husband knew about this, but the woman did not. And she woke from the surgery, was told she was fine, and then subsequently realized that she was pregnant and always thought that somehow after years of infertility, she and her husband had successfully conceived. And We know this because 25 years later, the man who was probably the donor wrote about it and in a sort of little pat on his own back said that Pancoast chose the man he thought would be the, quote, best looking possible. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. This episode is leaving such a bad taste in my mouth. This is just like, this is a a masterclass in the abuses like of medical abuse and, you know, medicalized racism. It is just horrible. Oh, it gets worse. I'm sorry. Great. (laughs) Fantastic. If you thought that was bad, just wait. Wait till we get to eugenics. So they... (laughs) You know, the technique slowly gets figured out a little bit. And so physicians and scientists and people at large are fascinated by this idea of eugenics, really starting in the 1910s and 20s. It's kind of everywhere, this idea that all kinds of traits are hereditary and that you can breed a better race, that you can make a healthier nation of people by sort of selective breeding, the same way you would use selective breeding of cattle, for example, of livestock, that you can apply that to human beings. And this was used both as a rationale to keep people out of the country. Eugenicists were very involved in restricting immigration, but it was also used to promote reproduction among the people that these scientists thought were the, like, strong, you know, breed Mm -hmm. of, you know, whatever. What I find so crazy is that very often the donors, the the people providing the donor sperm, all through like the 1960s, were the male medical students, residents, and even colleagues of the physicians doing the inseminations, doing the procedures. And I don't under... What? 
(laughs) I mean, one might posit that somebody who was willing to (laughs) use their sperm in an unethical medical procedure is maybe actually not the pinnacle of eugenics. (laughs) But wow. I mean, I wish I could say I'm surprised, Rebecca. Uh, It's awful. It's also, it's so oddly kind of pornographic the way that these male physicians and people studying to be physicians are sort of, you can almost imagine them sort of chuckling and joking about which guy they think has the most, you know, lively sperm. Yeah, yeah, mo- yeah, which one's most virile and who's going to go masturbate in the, you know, men's room or wherever to, I mean, it's it feels gross. I just, I feel, I'm so upset thinking about yeah. it and I can't quite articulate why. Well, and there's just like so many things that are wrong with it, right? There's like the eugenics piece. There is the anesthetized person, non-consensual, very vulnerable exam piece. There's the like, what a bizarre and messed up work environment, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can't even... Wait till HR finds out. (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely going to have to be some uh, videos watched... (laughs) And like, in some ways, I think that it is such a perfect encapsulation of how disempowered people can be in the healthcare system. Yeah. And like dehumanized. And I will say, you know, as you were talking about kind of the the very problematic and racist and eugenic history of assisted reproductive technology or artificial insemination, you know, there are certainly still echoes of that today in reproductive health care. And, you know, if you haven't had an opportunity to start looking on a sperm bank's website, and, you know, most people haven't because it's not something that they do on a regular basis, but it is like internet dating taken to 11, you know, (laughs) and it shows up in all sorts of really interesting ways that this kind of weird racism, colorism stuff, you know, like certain sperm will be more expensive. And usually those donors have attributes that are considered, you know, big air quotes here, desirable. So white, fair-haired, tall, athletic. And if you are looking for a donor that's Black, it's really hard to find a donor who is Black who is actually dark-skinned because that is considered, you know, again, air quotes here, is considered like an unfavorable donor characteristic. So it's a lot of light-skinned donors. Um, You know, I don't know if you, have you ever listened to the Longest Shortest Time podcast? I haven't. Oh, it's a brilliant, it's brilliant. Um, and there there was a an episode about this specifically called Sperm Shopping by Color. And it's about a lesbian couple who were trying to find sperm donors that that were acceptable to them as or desirable to them as a couple. And they talk about what it's like as a as a, uh, one partner, I think, is a Latinx woman and the other partner is a Black woman and just like how it was really challenging for them to find a donor that reflected the the characteristics that they were looking for. You know, even just like filtering, you know, filtering for a donor is in and of itself kind of a very 
mind-bending, confusing, upsetting experience. But, you know, this stuff still exists, even if it is not as blatant as, you know, non-consensual, unanesthetized exams on Black women. Right. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. But it becomes, you know, it goes from being this very fringe practice to by 1960, there are estimates that there are perhaps 50,000 kids in the United States who've been conceived using in vitro. And of course, the numbers on assisted insemination are really difficult to know because it wasn't legally outlined yet. It often was done without reporting that it had been done. So there were concerns about if the sperm donor was not the legal husband of the person being inseminated, were there possible, you know, parental rights and things that could happen. So it was Mm -hmm. kind of done on the down low for a while. But things change in the 70s. There are more sperm banks. They figured out how to freeze it and, and maintain it. A lot of that new technology comes from the livestock business. But also the other key piece of this is a whole other completely separate movement. And that is among women and LGBTQ people to take control over their bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really when it gets started. And that's when the turkey baster comes in. And also because for lesbian women in the 1970s, they usually couldn't use sperm banks um, Mm -hmm. because you had to be married uh, to a man and, you know, they weren't. So one of the things that women who didn't want to go through a sperm bank or couldn't go through a sperm bank did was they asked gay male friends to provide sperm for them. And this was sort of a form of community making. It wasn't necessarily a form of family making. The gay men usually understood that they were simply providing a good, you know, providing (laughs) something that their female friends needed and weren't seeing it as that they would be sort of in a family role. At the same time, there's this whole part of gay and lesbian parenting and family making that is about breaking the bounds of the nuclear family and really saying lots of people make a family and lots of relationships are the intense, effective, caregiving relationships that help raise children, Mm -hmm. not necessarily or not limited to the people who provide the biological building blocks of that person, or necessarily those people at all. So it was really part of the whole process for the gay and lesbian liberation movement and rights movement in the 70s and 80s to say, we're going to make families our own way. And so that's, you know, turkey basters or really a syringe from the drugstore become (laughs) part of it. And right away, there are articles in the newspaper that are like, yeah, I guess this is okay gosh, I hope it doesn't lead to a complete replacement of men. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that's very stressful to think about, you know, your existence no longer being centered. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, some critics fear that artificial insemination will destroy the traditional family, be used exclusively by lesbians, or be used to genetically develop a master race. That's from an article in the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. Where And in that article, the physician, a Dr. John Maddox, who actually provided the procedure to the woman who's just called Jennifer in the article who had it, totally dismisses those fears. And he says, people who want children should have them. And so, Dr. Maddox, thank you. 
you know, uh, that that's great. Just sort of, this is a patient asking for a form of healthcare that is, you know, a beneficial healthcare for them, informed consent, and I provide the healthcare. I'm not here to sort of judge uh, whether or not this leads to the fall of patriarchy. <laughs> so, and the other thing, there yeah. it is a largely for-profit, it's a business. And, oh, certainly. Mm-hmm. And the one nonprofit was, surprise, surprise, a feminist sperm bank of California, which was founded mm-hmm. in 1982 by the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center. Um, mm-hmm. And there were some sperm banks that opened that were like, in case you didn't want to go to a friend or if that was awkward or whatever, there were sperm banks that really said, hey, you're a lesbian, you're trans, you're in a thruple, whatever, we're here for you. We actually yeah. are specifically interested in helping people who aren't in heterosexual marriages access, you know, this reproductive care. And, you know, there there are a lot of LGBTQ families that are raising children in the United States. You know, the Williams Institute does quite a bit of research on LGBTQ families and child rearing. And in some data from 2016, they estimated that there were about like 700,000 queer couples living in the United States. And about 114,000 of those couples were raising children. And so that ultimately works out to about like, at that time, about a quarter of lesbian couples were raising children and about 8% of gay male couples were raising children. And the desire to create a family and in whatever way you want to create a family, is increasing. So more recent data, I think from 2019, showed that 63% of LGBTQ millennials are considering expanding their families. And so that gap between LGBTQIA people and non-LGBTQIA people who are interested in parenting that's really narrowing. In addition to the concerns that some people have about what does artificial insemination mean for the nuclear family and is it destroying our traditional families, sometimes people have concerns about what about the children? You know, like how, but what will happen to the children if they're raised by LGBTQ parents? And it turns out that the kids are all right. Um, <laughs> there are, There have been a few studies that um, have actually looked at this, and one was the uh, National Survey of Children's Health that used data from 2011 to 2012. Um, There were no differences in mental health outcomes, specifically for children who had either two female parents versus male-female parents. The, The parents themselves reported more stress, but that's not terribly surprising what we know about minority stress and things like that and, you know, heteronormativity and homophobia. But I think one of the most interesting studies is one that's been going on since the 1980s, actually. So it's called the National Longitudinal Lesbian Family Study. They've been following lesbian mothers and their children who were conceived by donor insemination during the 1980s. And it looks at social, psychological, and emotional development of the children, as well as the dynamics of these planned lesbian families. 
so in May 2021, they found that the children of those lesbian marriages or lesbian family expansions do as well on all of these multiple markers of psychological health as their peers who have straight parents. So all of this kind of, you know, hand-wringing about the damage done to children of queer parents, it's just has not, it's not borne out in the data. Right. That makes so much sense. I mean, so much of the criticism of these alternate family formations go back to these questions that I started with over, you know, white supremacy and trying to split people up into categories by race and and a hierarchy of races. And they go back to efforts to have a small group of people control what women and queer people do with their bodies. And now on a lighter note, um, have you ever heard of the Simonette? No. Okay. So there's an entrepreneur named Stephanie Berman and her partner, and I think she calls her her wife, so I think they're married, they wanted to start a family together. And they knew all about turkey basters or the sort of more medical versions of that. And Stephanie Berman wanted to have a sexual experience of conceiving a child with her wife. So she invented a strap-on dildo that is engineered with an internal tubing system to ejaculate so that she could have sex with her wife using the semenette, which is this strap-on tubed dildo, and then ejaculate semen into her wife's body, into her wife's vagina. And yeah, she nicknamed herself Sperman Berman. She has, quote, my wife and my two babies Created with my dildo. <laughs> and this was in the early, like, 2010s that she was doing this. And you can find oh. her. She has YouTube videos where she talks about it. We will link to them in our show notes. You know, it's funny. We hear so much about the way that modern technology has separated sex and reproduction, that now we have reliable contraceptives and things. And she wanted to reunite them. She wanted reproduction to be erotic, Uh, for her and her wife, rather than having it be this purely medical experience. But what Berman claimed was that the semenette had been purchased by men with erectile dysfunction, people with disabilities, transgender people, that it provides a way for an intimate experience of artificial insemination. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Oh, the entrepreneurial spirit of the LGBTQ community. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, so there are all these DIY. I mean, it's a it's a it's a sort of capitalistic answer to the turkey baster, right? It's a marketed commodity that she profits from. But you know, I think that it's another way of trying to reclaim the process. And yeah, I like that. But all that said, I feel as if the turkey baster took on a life of its own, and that you heard about it from patients. But I think it comes up in very like on television shows and so on. So, what are some of your associations? What are some of your pop culture associations? You know, I I feel like the the turkey baster has become this like symbol of lesbian motherhood, right? But certainly lesbians don't have an exclusive claim on the turkey baster or on parenthood planning or on 
alternative reproductive methods, right? But pretty sure that the turkey baster was referenced in the L word at one point. Isn't it how Bet and Tina get pregnant? I mean, I don't know that they actually used a turkey baster in that There's scene. a tube of some kind. There is like a tube of some kind, yes. Yeah. Some sort of sperm delivery device. <laughs> um, uh, it wasn't, it and, wasn't a semenette. It was not a semenette. This definitely predated semenettes. And then, you know, for a, a, a darker, more, you know, SVU-like reference, they at one point there was somebody in The Good Wife who had used a turkey baster. She... There was somebody who was a a nefarious character who I think had maybe killed his wife, and this person performed oral sex on him and then kept the semen in her mouth long enough to then go on to self-inseminate using a turkey baster. I have no... I'm like... I'm sort <laughs> you of... You have nothing. You're just... I'm nothing. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> on, a, on a lighter note, Ronnie, there was... Note, yeah. There was a musical that was written in the 1980s called The 10% Review, 10% being a reference to this idea that one in 10 people are queer. Mm-hmm. And one of the songs was Turkey Baster Baby. But what could be sweeter or purer or chaster than a rendezvous? So, you know, I think one thing that I wanted to mention was often when clinicians are thinking about helping LGBTQ families expand or get pregnant or have children, it feels really overwhelming. And like there are so many things that they don't know. And it's similar, I think, with I almost anything, right? You don't actually have to be an expert. You just need to know where you or other people can get information. So, you know, family building can be challenging for LGBTQ folks. And there oftentimes are really minute legal issues that around parenthood or custody or state law. And I am not a lawyer intentionally, but there are a couple resources for families that you can point folks towards. So the the one I think that's the most helpful is Lambda Legal's website. Um, and again, we can include that link in our, our show notes, but it goes through state by state and it walks people through kind of what you need to know from a legal perspective about expanding your family and parenthood and things like that. Awesome. Thank you. Today's episode really covered the range of emotions from (laughs) disgust. This is a full inside out. We had joy. We had sadness. Yeah. We had anger. And we had disgust. (laughs) We did. I am now currently feeling a a sense of um, satisfaction and fatigue (laughs) similar (laughs) The tryptophan-induced state after a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, there you go. Full circle. Full circle. (laughs) Can I tell you, probably, this? I've never said this publicly before. Oh, dear. I hate listening to people talk about food. Really? I have, I don't, I want to read about it. I don't want to hear about it. So 
NPR in the month of November is just this relentless conversation about cranberry relish recipes. I was just going to ask you about that. Who is it? Cokie Roberts? Is she the one who does the Susan Stamberg. Grandma Stamberg. And I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) The one one exception is the Great British Bake Off, because that's just, that's almost more like science experiments, the kind of architecture and whatever. But in general, like, I don't care. I don't care what you're eating for your Thanksgiving dinner. I don't care how you baked it or prepared it. I don't care what seasonings you used. (laughs) Zero interest. And I realized that this was being a minority, but (laughs) I just, I felt, I feel comfortable in this space to share this with you. Boy, I am so glad that we have created a safe space for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, what are we talking about next month? Our last episode of season one coming to you sometime late November is, this is because I'm fat, right? Yeah. That's a good one. We're going maintenance phase on you. Right. We're going to follow in the footsteps of our heroes at the maintenance phase pod and think about how fat phobia shapes the kind of medical care that people get, particularly around questions about relating to bodies and sexualities and gender. So, hey, also happening between now and then is my son is becoming bar mitzvah. (gasps) Mazel tov. Thank you. Today, you are a man. Yes. Tomorrow, back to seventh grade. (laughs) (laughs) A hundred percent. A hundred (laughs) percent. Oh, my gosh. Good luck. Thank you. You've been listening to... This is probably a really weird question, which is created, hosted, and produced by Rebecca Davis and Ronnie Hyone. You can learn more about us, read our show notes, and find links to resources on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Follow us on Twitter at A Really Weird Pod. Rebecca tweets at History Davis and Ronnie at Dr. Awkward MD. Send us your really weird, not really, questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com. Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music. We are grateful for the financial support of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation Trust. We additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening, and keep on asking those questions. <laughs>